0: In in 1976, the Supreme Court said that if a billionaire wants to own a politician, wants to give so much money to a politician, that that politician basically is their pet, you know? Uh, We used to call that bribery or corruption, and the Supreme Court said, no, it's not bribery, it's not corruption. It is free speech, and it's protected by the First Amendment.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Tom Hartman is a progressive political talk show host, entrepreneur, and author who has a multi-million person weekly audience. He's writing a series of small, hidden history books on topics relevant to progressives. His first interview on my show has a lot more of his biography. This time, we discussed politics and his new book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Tom Hartman of The Hidden History Series and The Tom Hartman Show. Tom, can you give people a quick introduction to who you are and what your latest book is?
0: Sure. I'm Tom Hartman, and my latest book is The Hidden History of American Oligarchy.
1: And this is in a series of books that you've written, all with the hidden history in the title. What is different about the oligarchy book?
0: Well, the the last book was The Hidden History of, of Monopoly, American Monopolies, and it was what happens when economic power gets concentrated in a very small number of typically corporate hands. And oligarchy is kind of the same thing, except it's what happens when political power gets highly concentrated in a small number of hands. And typically, the oligarchs are also, you know, economic oligarchs. Uh, they're, they're also very, very rich people. Monopoly is when, when corporations eliminate competition, Oligarchy is when rich people eliminate the people, basically, from the political sphere, ruled by the rich. In
1: your book, you trace this sort of coming up several times in our history. To what degree do you think we have that going on?
0: America is uh, largely since the, since the late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, America has drifted steadily, progressively consistently step by step closer and closer to oligarchy to the point right now where I think you could probably define America as uh, at least a semi-oligarchy. Gillens and Page did a study that I uh, lay out in the book uh, back, I think it was in uh, 2012, where they looked at over a decade or so period of time, public opinion polls on policies that were being proposed for legislation. Also at Uh, opinion polls among the top 5% with regard to those same policies. And uh, as I recall, it might have been the top 3%. But basically what they found was that the majority of time, more than 50% of the time, what the top, the the oligarchs essentially wanted got translated into public policy. It got made into law. But when they looked at the correlation between what the broad public wants, what the bottom 90% wants, the general public, uh, versus what got made into law. There was no discernible association. The phrase that they used was it was equivalent to uh, white noise, to, to noise. In other words, our political system sometime in the, uh, probably in the 90s, uh, basically just stopped paying attention to average people. And I think that that's, average people have gotten that. That was Donald Trump's message in 2016. The system is rigged against you. There was a lot of truth to that. That was also Bernie Sanders's message. And if we don't do something about that, there's going to be another Donald Trump or maybe another Bernie Sanders. But the Donald Trumps are the ones that worry us because they're the ones who are just out and out fascist. Sanders just wants to fix the problem. But uh, it's going to come around again.
1: Well, it's fairly ironic that a billionaire and maybe wannabe fascist is talking to people about this problem and winning them some of them over on that basis, isn't it?
0: You mean Donald Trump? Yeah. First of all, there's the old notion that Republican voters don't think of themselves as working class or middle class people. They think of themselves as temporarily distressed millionaires. You know, multimillionaire Rush Limbaugh, billionaire uh, Rupert Murdoch, multimillionaire Sean Hannity, they basically have all been selling that pitch to average working people in America for years and years and years. The reason why, as Thomas Frank pointed out in his book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Why average working people consistently vote for politicians whose main mission in life is to screw average working people, Uh, sadly. And so here we are.
1: Well, when I talk to Republicans about kind of Trumpist power They all say they're afraid of the voters and that the reason that so many of the other Republican leaders went along with Trump's moves was because his base wanted it and they were attached to that. How do you understand that?
0: That rationale is uh, only half true. The fact of the matter is that a lot of people followed Trump for a lot of different reasons. You had the anti-abortion the fanatics who followed him because he promised to put people on the Supreme Court who would outlaw abortion. You had the gun nuts following him because he was like all about more guns, more guns. You had probably the largest sector of the population that voted for him. People who were freaked out about jobs going to China, you know, and, and if you look at the age of these people, there are people who are old enough to remember that when Walmart started, Sam Walton's slogan was hundred percent made in the USA. And it wasn't until Sam retired from Walmart that, boom, suddenly everything is made in China. But there was a big shift that happened in the 1990s, in large part as the result of the trade policies that were negotiated by Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush, like NAFTA, which was signed by Clinton, but it had been negotiated by the Bush administration. So people get it that, that they're being screwed. And then, and then there's a, a fairly substantial contingent on the Republican side who voted for Donald Trump who were doing it simply because he hated people of color and wanted to do everything he could to preserve not just white privilege, but white male privilege. And uh, so you've got the misogynists and the racists too, but basically he pulled together a coalition Republican politicians looking at that coalition. And by the way, this is nothing new. The the Republican party has been doing this since the eighties, since Reagan came along, you can't get elected just saying, Hey, we're the party of billionaires and big corporations. And so uh, originally Reagan brought in the racist vote and, and Reagan brought in the, uh, ultimately, the anti-abortion vote, which was kind of ironic because he signed the most liberal abortion legislation in the country when he was governor of California. And his vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, had been on the board of Planned Parenthood. Um, But all that changed in 1980 in order to get elected, uh, you know, when they brought in George W. Bush as their link to the evangelicals. Anyhow, they historically put together these coalitions. But what Trump added to that coalition were basically the the authoritarian followers, the neo-fascist freaks. The Republican coalition has had to continuously expand itself because there's just not enough people who are totally down with doing everything you possibly can for billionaires and big corporations. So Trump took it to the point where it could be used to win elections, and of course he's got help from billionaire Rupert Murdoch in a huge way which is ongoing, and right-wing talk radio where you've got a bunch of multimillionaire hosts out there and in these very large venues, talking to huge chunks of America, again, telling Americans that what's best for billionaires is best for working people, which, you know, as, as we all know, is just a lie. So those politicians simply wanted to win elections, and they thought that Trump's followers, if they sucked up to Trump enough, the, his followers would go along with them. I think it was a bad bet, but, you know, it's a bet they made.
1: I mean, you wrote the book before this election, and... You know, we dodged a bullet, narrowly. How do you view the 2020 election and the aftermath, and uh, I guess through the inauguration, through this lens of the fight against oligarchy?
0: Well, it goes even beyond that, and, and the, you know, the last third of the book is about basically what happens when oligarchy morphs into tyranny, when the people start pushing back against the oligarchs, and so the oligarchs basically flip the country into a police state. That is exactly what I think would have happened had we not had COVID and had Trump not screwed up the response to it. I think he would have gotten reelected. I think that the Republicans would have taken the House and had the Republicans taken the House, even if Joe Biden won the election, although I don't think he would have uh, had there not been COVID, but even if Joe Biden had won the election, they would have given the election to Donald Trump. And that would be the end of the American experiment. I think we came far closer than anybody realizes to the end of America as we know it.
1: It certainly scared the pants off me. Same here. I had to sort of huddle in my garage the whole day and listen to NPR rather than anything more emotionally charged and sort of get through it. The fight, it strikes me as far from over. Trump is not done. Where is the battle during this time where we do have
0: Biden? I think it's the realm of political power, the essence of political power in the United States since the uh, the 76 and 78 Supreme Court decisions, the Buckley versus Vallejo and First National Bank versus Volody decisions, where for the very first time in the history of America in, in 1976, the Supreme Court said that if a billionaire wants to own a politician, wants to give so much money to a politician that that politician basically is their... Pet, you know, uh, we used to call that bribery or corruption. And the Supreme Court said, no, it's not bribery, it's not corruption, it is free speech and it's protected by the First Amendment. And then two years later, in the uh, Bilotti decision, they extended that logic to corporations because, of course, corporations are people too, my friend. And then they doubled down on it in 2010 in Citizens United, where they expanded those rights and powers of very wealth- wealthy people and big corporations to own politicians that's where we need to take it on. In the last two days, I've gotten two squealing emails from, from FreedomWorks, you know, the the Coke uh, affiliate uh, group that brought us the Tea Party, uh, talking about HR one is called the gag rule or the gag uh, bill or gag legislation or whatever. It's going to shut up people like FreedomWorks because we will now have to disclose who our donors are. Oh my God. And then Antifa is going to come and get us like billionaires are really worried about this. But I think that HR one, this first piece of legislation coming out of the House, is probably going to be one of the most consequential pieces of legislation, period, because it addresses this root problem of big money influencing our politics.
1: You think you can get through the Senate?
0: We'll see. We'll see. Uh, we're going to have to work our butts off, you know, to, to lean on our senators to make that happen. There are there's a few Democratic senators who take big money from billionaires and in big industries. Uh, Joe Manchin's probably at the top of that list, but he's not the only one. And uh, they're going to be under considerable pressure from their donors to say no on it. Um, But uh, we'll see.
1: How do we understand the oligarch alignment with party when there are lots of very, very wealthy people also supporting the Democrats and put a lot of effort, anti-Trump effort in, in this last election?
0: Since uh, 1920 when Warren Harding ran for president, keep in mind the the two Republican presidents before Harding, uh, Taft and and Teddy Roosevelt were both progressives. And uh, then Warren Harding came along in 1920 and ran on a campaign of dropping the top tax rate from 91% down to 25%, which he did. And his slogan was more business in government, less government in business. In other words, privatize and deregulate, which he did. And since that election of 1920, the Republican party has uh, basically and continuously for 100 years now been the party of the rich and as Franklin Roosevelt referred to them, the the wealthy and the well-born. The Democratic Party throughout most of that period of time instead has been the party of the working people, the party of the unions, the party of of the grassroots, the party of the farmers, the party of the average guy and, and gal. Well, in 76 and 78, when those two Supreme Court decisions happened that I was talking about, the Republican Party immediately said, cool, you know, we can take money from billionaires and corporations, we'll take all you've got. And money just poured like a like a waterfall into the Republican Party in 1979 and 1980, and and propelled Ronald Reagan into the White House. But at that point in time, the unions, I mean, a third of America had a union job, unions were wealthy and powerful and uh, were the principal source of funding for the Democratic Party. And so the Democrats in 1980 didn't go looking for corporations to start funding them. I mean, there were always a few, but they were the wild exceptions, just like progressive Republicans like Bob Padford were the wild exceptions, you know, or uh, Nelson Rockefeller. Reagan declared war on the unions, specifically to defund the Democratic Party. And by the time the 12 years of Reagan and Bush were done, Uh, We had gone from one-third of America being unionized to around 13 14%, and now it's down to 6% in the private uh, sector. And the result of that was that when Bill Clinton was running in 92, he didn't have enough money from unions to actually launch a presidential campaign. So him and Al Fromm got together and created this thing called the DLC, the Democratic Leadership uh, Council, and uh, used it as a vehicle to funnel corporate money into his 1992 campaign. And that was when uh, about half of the Democratic Party uh, threw in big time uh, with corporations. They, they, they did try to distinguish themselves from the Republicans. They said, we'll take the banks, we'll take the white collar uh, corporate money. We'll take the banks and the insurance companies and, and uh, big tech and, you know, electronics and things like that. We'll let the uh, Republicans have the defense contractors, the oil, the steel, the dirty industries. And that pretty much held. I mean, that was the Clinton administration um, that held right up until Obama in 2008 was able to prove that in this new Internet age, you could raise enough money to run a presidential campaign. Although the Obama administration was still running on the old DLC, as were about half, maybe more than half of all the Democrats in the House and Senate. Now that uh, not only has Barack Obama proved that this is possible, but so did Hillary Clinton and so did Bernie Sanders, perhaps more to the point uh, that it's possible to uh, run campaigns without money. We have uh, about 100 members of the Democratic caucus um, of the 200 and some odd, 220 some odd, I think it's 224 members of the House who are Democrats. About 100 of them now are members of the Progressive Caucus. And if you take corporate money, you're not you know, in that caucus. So uh, the Democratic Party is now in the process of going back to its roots. I just gave you the long answer to your question. The short answer is that the Democratic Party's flirtation or experiment or or period of time of basically being shills for billionaires and, and big corporations was uh, hopefully a temporary aberration, and it appears to be fading away. A lot of the
1: final parts of your book have to do with what tyranny tries to do to hold power or come to power in that sort of way and what sort of moves we can make to fight
0: it? Well, when a country is making the transition from oligarchy to tyranny or from democracy to tyranny, there's a very predictable playbook. Donald Trump was just running the playbook. He was running the playbook that Putin used in Russia. He was running the playbook that Orban used in Hungary. He was running the playbook that Erdogan used in Turkey, although he had a an eruption that helped him do that with you know an attempted coup. El Sisi in Egypt. I mean, you know, pick your country and uh, stacking the courts, packing the courts, which Mitch McConnell has been doing with mm-hmm. uh, billionaire oligarch-friendly uh, judges, is a big part of it. Using the apparatus of the state, the intelligence apparatus, of the state on the people rather than on external threats is a big part of it. Um, changing the legal system to uh, criminalize large swaths of behavior so that pretty much everybody at one point or another has committed some kind of crime. Um, even if it's just like, you know, emailing a friend a photograph, well, that's now a $300,000 fine, right? And so, you know, the average person could be taken down if somebody decides to take them down. Um, you know, that's just the copyright. So, you know, widespread criminalization and then and then the cronyization of government, basically putting all of the regulatory agencies and everybody else in the pockets of of, you know, friends of the oligarchs or of the tyrants and use aggressively using that police power. And we see this, we, you know, you see it, China doing this right now, you know, with the people in Hong Kong and Macau. It's not novel. What's novel is that we almost got there in the United States during the Trump administration.
1: It's hard to calculate how close we came. There's been this big trend in the media control that's in the same vein that you're talking about. On the other hand, our institutions seem to hold up in many spheres. Tell me about the recommendations that you have for taking us back from this brink and sort of re-democratizing.
0: Well, I think the principal one is what we talked about a few minutes ago, Nathaniel, which is the getting the money out of politics. You know, money is the root of all evil is very much the case here. Or I guess the old saying is love of money. But uh, in this case, it's just money. You know, we have to extract that. We need to clean up our our legal system and our judiciary, but in particular, our legal system, which comes down hard on people who steal candy bars, but very lightly slaps the hands of people like Steve Mnuchin, who illegally, fraudulently threw over 10,000 people out of their homes in California before Donald Trump made him secretary of the treasury. You know, that was a real disaster that Kamala Harris chose not to prosecute him. And, and this this happens so often that people are not prosecuted because they're wealthy.
1: Does the money out of politics thing work as well as it did a while ago when Democrats have outraised consistently and outspent uh, Republicans in all these Senate races? I think in the presidential races, we've held our own, you know, doing much better with small donors. I mean, Trump raised a lot of money, but. That system's not wholly broken, right?
0: Yes, but when you say the parties raised money or the individual candidates raised money, you're absolutely right. And and uh, over a billion dollars, in fact, I, th- I believe it was over $2 billion in the last election cycle. However, that doesn't account for dark money. Um, Mitch McConnell, in the last week of the race in Georgia, for example, just dumped $50 million into that race, just poured it in. That money came from a super PAC that McConnell controls, and we have no idea where that money came from. And in fact, we have no idea how much dark money was spent in the last election, because the reporting requirements have been gutted. It may be true that the Republicans raise a billion, the Democrats raise a billion, but then dark money comes in and spends another billion for the Republicans, and maybe the Democrats can raise, you know, a couple hundred million dollars in dark money, but even that is a huge stretch. Because Republicans have entire swaths of industry that view electing Republicans as an investment that will produce a return. Put in $1, make $10, whether it's in tax cuts or whether it's in deregulation that reduces costs or whether it's in lack of regulation, which allows you to to wipe out your competitors and behave in monopolistic fashions. Democrats have very few industries that they're that tight with where those industries are willing to pour money into the Democratic Party or into Democratic politicians in order to keep them you know, afloat, basically. In fact, I would say, broadly speaking, most Democrats, at least progressive Democrats, have no industries that will do that for them. It's all grassroots. And that's one of the challenges for uh, a progressive Democrat running uh, a national campaign.
1: You have a radio show that's listened to by a lot of people. What did you hear since the election that's different than before? And what are you hearing since the inauguration that's different?
0: Well, since the election, it was, you know, thank God we dodged the bullet. And then that became, you know, high anxiety because Donald Trump was lying that uh, Democrats and and specifically black people in Philadelphia and Detroit and Milwaukee had uh, stolen the election from him. It was a lie. It still is a lie. He's still perpetuating this lie. You've got large chunks of the Republican Party that are still perpetuating this lie. And they're doing it because it's based on a Republican lie that they've been promoting for 40 years now, which is that there are fraudulent voters, that there are that there are millions of people out there who, who uh, want to vote twice. They want to vote in multiple states. Uh, they want to vote in the name of their dead mother, or they're not citizens and they want to vote. The fact of the matter is, That is just a complete lie. Uh, George W. Bush uh, famously, I mean, it was a huge scandal, ordered all 100 of his U.S. prosecutors to drop everything and put as top priority, looking for voter fraud. He was going to prove it, right? And he spent $74 million in two and a half years. And seven of his U.S. attorneys said, this is crazy. There's no such thing. And, And we're supposed to be prosecuting, you know, robbers and rapists and muggers. Um, not going to do it. And he fired them and replaced them, you'll recall. And the result of that two and a half year, $74 million search that involved the highest levels of the U.S. Justice Department was that out of 1 billion votes, they were able to identify 31 fraudulent votes out of over a billion. And of those 31 fraudulent votes, only one of them was a person who wasn't a citizen and he voted for a Republican. He was a guy from Switzerland. Two or three of them, were people who were residents of one state and voted in another because they had a vacation home someplace or something like that. And all the rest of them, the other like 28 of them were people who had felony convictions and lived in states where if you're a felon, you can't vote, which is about, you know, 16, 16 or 17 states, I think, most of the southern states. This is a leftover from Jim Crow, and they didn't realize that they couldn't vote. And none of those votes actually got counted because they all got flagged, which is how the U.S. attorneys were able to easily find them. So voter fraud just literally doesn't happen. I mean, what kind of idiot who's not a citizen wants to walk in and say, hi, I'm here to vote, uh, knowing that they could go to jail for five years? What kind of idiot who is a citizen who's already voted wants to go into another voting place and and try to vote a second time, uh, you know, facing five years in jail? It just doesn't happen. But the Republican Party has been using this to justify laws that make it harder for black people to vote, uh, for people who live in cities to vote in particular, because, you know, uh, most cities have good public transportation, people don't buy cars. In many cases, they don't even have driver's licenses, particularly if they're low income. Uh, Students, uh, you know, that, that make it harder for students to vote. You know, some of these laws, in fact, almost all of them, say that you must have a an active driver's license, a current driver's license. Well, if you're 80 years old and you've quit driving and your principal issue is Social Security and Medicare, which the Republicans want to privatize, you no longer have a current driver's license. You've lost your right to vote. You know, the Republicans have been running this voter suppression scam now for 40 years, and they can't just admit that it was all a lie. It was a fraud all along. And so they're having a real hard time, uh, you know, because all Trump did was take, you know a, a 40-year Republican con job scam and put it on steroids and say, yeah, 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 there's, there's uh, illegal voters out there. And in fact, uh, that's who screwed me. That's why, you know, Biden didn't win by 7 million votes. He lost, you know, I won in a landslide uh, because of illegal voters. Don't you know? We've been telling you this for 40 years. And of course, because it's a lie built on a lie that the institutional Republican Party promotes to this day, it is credible. To a lot of people, you know, a lot of low information voters or a lot of Republican voters. And that's really a tragedy.
1: It is. Is a lot of the conversation about, like, how progressive are we going to govern? What's it about now?
0: Well, you know, now we're going to start having policy debates. We, we didn't have policy debates during the last four years, by and large, in the media, because there was no real policy being promoted by the Republican Party. And they, they basically controlled everything. Um, you know, or the the one policy that they were promoting or the two policies that they were promoting were cutting taxes on rich people and corporations and uh, eliminating environmental regulations. And, uh, you know, they were able to do that. They had the majority. But now we're going to be talking about things like, do we really want to be the only developed country in the world where we have student debt? Do we really want to be the only country in the world where where, you know, about half our population doesn't have adequate access to health care? Do we want to be the only country in the world where the average family is paying a $5,000 a year? I call it a monopoly tax. You know, these things are going to become actual uh, issues, policy issues, you know, education, healthcare, care, monopoly, um, the environment, uh, the Green New Deal, all these kind of things. And, and uh, so those are the conversations we're having now. And, and I'm, I'm looking forward to them. You know, uh, becoming really consequential.
1: What's next for you in the in the writing?
0: I just finished writing the the hidden history of American healthcare. Um, you know how our system got as screwed up as it is, and what we can do about it. That just went off to the to the line editor, and that book will be out in print probably in August.
1: What's the thesis?
0: It's the racism, stupid. Um, virtually all of the opposition to a national healthcare system uh, from the 1890s forward. Teddy Roosevelt proposed this in the 19 aughts. Franklin Roosevelt proposed it in the 1930s. Harry Truman proposed it in 1940, uh, 47. John F. Kennedy proposed it. Lyndon Johnson proposed it. Bill Clinton proposed it. In every case, the principal opposition to it came from uh, Southern conservatives who were basically saying, what, you want to give health care to black people? Really? The email that I got yesterday from FreedomWorks said that, you know, the Democrats want to give healthcare to uh, free health care to illegal immigrants. In other words, brown people. Oh, my God, we can't have that. Frankly, I mean, common sense would indicate that even if somebody's in this country without documentation, If they've got tuberculosis and they're working, you know, next to you or sitting next to you on the bus, you want them to have access to antibiotics, you know. But, you know, the the Republicans don't care. They're playing the racist card and they're going to keep on playing the racist card.
1: Lovely. So you still enjoying what you're doing?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've been doing this show for, what, 18 18 years, I think now. And uh, I'm I'm, I'm loving it.
1: Well, thanks for taking the time with me. Uh, Anything else you want to say?
0: no nathaniel you you've got a, a great podcast and it's an honor to be here with you thank you so much for for having me on great battlefield
1: that was tom hartman of the tom hartman show this is nathaniel g perlman with the great battlefield podcast you can find us at Greatbattlefield.com or by searching for great battlefield in places where podcasts are found